you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so as I kind of said, right out the gate, we have this transition from feasting in chapter 8 to fasting in chapter 9. Um, it says they got together and they refrained from eating. That's what fasting is. Um, and the reason Christians and uh, the Israelites here, but historically the people of God have fasted, is because it makes us physically hungry to remind us of our constant need for God's presence and God's mercy. So there's this sense that they're fasting here to remind themselves of their great need, not just for food, but the hope is that beyond food, they need to be sustained by something greater than this earth, by God himself. Um, and in chapter 8 before, right, we had this massive feast in honor of what God had done. God had given them success in the building project of Jerusalem. He had um, given them all this great success against the oppression of their enemies, the threats of their enemies, whether internal to the city we've seen so far in Nehemiah or external, those surrounding that wanted them dead. So God has given them the success, but they mourn now for, for one big reason. Even though they've seen God work in their small, immediate, this small, immediate battle and victory, rebuilding Jerusalem, the reality is God's people here, the Israelites, are still ruled over by Persia. So the Persian king still rules over them, and even though the Persian king has kind of given them permission, they are still in large part, especially with surrounding areas, enslaved, they say. They're still exiled. And the Israelites are going to go through the motions to remember why they're exiled. And the, re- the reason is uh, because they've been sinful, because they've been disobedient to God. They haven't given God reverence for the things that he has done for them. So they're going to count all of this. We skipped it in this morning's reading because it's a lot, but we're going to go through some of that this morning and unpack it. It says they put on sackcloth. It says the earth was on their heads. So think of Ash Wednesday gatherings, right, where you see a, cra- a, a, a cross of Ash, and we say, from dust you have come, to dust you shall return. So think of that kind of earth on their heads. It's a a posture of our mortality, but also the earth was on their heads simply because they were praying in a posture with their foreheads on the dirt, pleading with God to deliver them from exile. Um, So they do that. They've got this posture of reverence, confession, and prayer. And it says... That uh, it adds that they got alone to do this, alone in the sense nationally, right? So in the Feast of Booths in chapter 8, the nations are present because the people of Israel are saying, look what God did. Why Why don't we share the abundance of God's riches with the people of the world? But in chapter 9, they say, okay, it's time for some family business. We are going to repent for the sins of our nation. It's pretty radical to think about. Um, They they move alone. They get alone and take care of the family business of repentance and pleading with God to deliver them. It's within this posture that we get a a worshipful reverence of God, an appeal to who God is. And we get this extended narrative of what the people of God have gone through. I say extended. Um, it's, It's what, 30 verses? And it's a 30 verse summation of the whole Old Testament up to this point. So it's quite brief, um, but it feels prolonged in the sense that it's a lot of the same kind of narrative, right? Um, but before they do, before they get to the, uh, the narrative of God's people that's given in, um, 
in Nehemiah 9, 16, they start with worship and reverence. Here's what they say in verse 5. The priests stand up and say, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So they, they get everybody to stand because they're about to read God's word. That's what we do on Sunday. Stand in reverence for God's word. They're about to recount the works of God. So everybody stands and blesses the Lord. And then they're going to do, they're going to do, um, they're going to say four things about God. They're going to appeal to God as creator of all. They're going to appeal to him as creator of their nation, of the people of God. They're going to appeal to him as their savior, and they're going to appeal to him as their provider. Um, verse 6 Continuing says this, you are the Lord. This is talking about God as creator. You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. So God creates all things. How has this creator made a people for himself? Verse 7 continues, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. So Abraham just means father of nations, father of multitudes. You've found his heart faithful before you and made with him a covenant to give to his offspring, who they are, give to his offspring this land. You have kept your promises for you are righteous. So God is creator of all and he has created the nation of Israel. He's created the people for himself. Third, he's their savior. They, they think back to Exodus. If you don't know Exodus, the people of God are enslaved in Egypt, and God saves them out. This is what he does. You saw the, verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and the people of his land. For you knew that the Egyptians acted arrogantly against our fathers. You made a name for yourself, a name that is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. So they remember that God saved them. And finally, they think back to God sustaining them to his provision. Verse 12. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in day. By a pillar of fire, you led them at night. You came down to Mount Sinai and spoke from them. Uh, to, with them from heaven and gave them rights and rules and laws and good statutes and good commandments. You made known your Sabbath, your rest, and commanded them commandments and statutes and laws by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread for their hunger. You brought water from them out of a rock, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So this is the context. Physically, outwardly, they're postured for repentance. They're, they're weeping. They're on the ground. They're, they're hungry. Um, and then they stand, and they remember God exalted, who he is, creator, creator of them, the nation, father of the nation, uh, savior and provider. And it's in this context, after this acknowledgement, that the Israelites turn to the pattern of remembering their story. So it goes from verses 16 to 31. And the pattern is this. They're going to recount an event where they were disobedient. They're going to recount an event where they pleaded with God, and they're going to recount an event where God was merciful to them. So it's going to continually be, we were disobedient, yet God was merciful, yet God forgave us. Right? Let's look at the first example, which picks up right where we ended. Verse 16, 
But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks. They did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders that you performed. They stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Here's what that's saying. When the Israelites were freed from Egypt, right when they got into the prom- right near the promised land in the wilderness, a leader said, it was better when we were slaves in Egypt than it is here. They immediately denied what God had done by saving them. And then we see God's response. Very next verse. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And you did not do what they deserved. Forsake them. You did not forsake them. They go on. They keep citing these examples. Example two is even when our fathers had made for themselves a golden calf. So the Israelites... After they say, we want to go back to Egypt to be slaves, and they say, no, we shouldn't do that. Moses says, that's not what we want to do. They make a golden cow, and they say, well, here's the God that delivered us from Egypt. It's this cow. And God says, or they say, of God, rather, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths and give them water for their thirst. Remember, God, when they're hungry in the wilderness, God provides food every morning. And when they're thirsty, they break a rock and water starts spouting out of it. God feeds them bread and water, uh, a foreshadowing of the table. But I won't go down that road. Um, I don't have enough time. It's a lot. So... The people do this over and over again, right? I'm not going to read all of them, but they do this over and over. They remember what they had done, how they failed to uphold God's laws, God's covenants. They failed to acknowledge God as God. And then they plead with God to be merciful, and he is merciful. As they kind of move through their remembrance of all the things they had done in disobedience, the sins and the offenses against God get more egregious and more egregious, and God begins to apply judgment to them for their sins. But even in his judgment, you'll see in the verses, God continues to be merciful, and the Israelites acknowledge this. They acknowledge that we deserve much worse, and yet you are giving us kings and making our armies strong. Well, in the end, uh, verse 26, 27, uh, it says this. Nevertheless, once again, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They cast your law on their back, and they killed your prophets who had warned them to turn back. You gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. So this is what happens. The Israelites are sent prophets by God, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. And Jeremiah comes along and says, we are disobedient, we aren't reverencing God, we aren't listening to his laws. And the Israelites say, that's a false prophet. And instead they elevate the prophets who say, we're about to be blessed. Those are the false prophets. They murder the prophets who are warning them. We can't, we have to live in reverence to God. We have to observe his holy laws. We have to be this people set apart so that we can bless the nations. And they say, that's, that's all false. So they acknowledge that there's this, historically, that they deserve to be punished. And it says, in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercy, you gave them saviors who would save them from the hands of their enemies. This pattern uh, has repeated for Israel up into this time of Nehemiah that we are talking about. 
And what the prophets have prophesied, the true prophets, has come to pass. They are exiled. They don't have a nation. They don't have a king. They are ruled by Babylon or Persia in this moment. The Israelites have no home. Um, And yet, in verse 31, the last mercy that they assign to God is the mercy that they still exist. It says, nevertheless, in your mercy, you did not make an end of us or them and forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful. So the fact that they are gathered together in a city that has been restored by God himself, is that the fact that we exist is kind of the last mercy of God. In a major sense, Israel is recounted. They're doing this in order to worship. They're remembering how often God has been merciful to them, how often God has forgiven them, how often God has saved them. But in another sense, they're getting ready, they're priming themselves to make a request of God. And, and it's almost as if they're, they're telling, they're worshiping all of this, and they're kind of praying it, and they're telling God, Hey God, remember all the ways that your people have been disobedient, and every time they ask for forgiveness, you save them? We're about to ask for forgiveness. We're about to do it. And this is like what they're about to do. Um, they've been saying, this is the pattern. We've sinned. We've sinned against you. We've broken your law. You've judged us. You're right to judge us. We've pleaded. We've pleaded for mercy, and you've been merciful. So we sinned. You judged. We pleaded. You were merciful. When we get to verse 32, we're about to hear Israel make a plea for mercy. Um, They say, this is how you consistently acted, God, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout our story. Every time our people have asked for forgiveness, you've consistently been forgiving and merciful. So then they say in 32, now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not our hardship seem little to you what has come upon us. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. Even in, uh, skipping down a bit, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, we did not serve you and turn from our wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day, God, in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy fruit and good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Its rich yield goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. So they're very, they're very They acknowledge that this is all because of them. And they plead with God to have mercy and to see them because of their suffering. So they plead with God and then they do something which I think is foolish. They make a covenant. The, verse 38 says, because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our priests, the Levites. We're going to unpack the obligations of this covenant next week. That's next week's sermon. But the reality is they just spent a quarter of a day talking about how often Israel had failed to be obedient to the promises that they've made before God. And their response to that is to make a new promise to God to be faithful. Like, do we think they're going to be successful? Somebody say no. Domingo's shaking his head. It's no. Here's a spoiler. By the end of the book of Nehemiah, they failed. They failed to keep the Sabbath. Nehemiah's furious by the end of the book. They, they are about to make this covenant to reestablish their, 
their holiness, that they can follow God's command. Even though their pattern has been promise, failure, promise, failure, promise, failure for generations. And they think, we're going we're gonna to break the cycle. Right now, we're going to make the covenant. Sign my name on it, Nehemiah. I'll put my name on it. It's easy to look down on Israel for their repeated failings. But this is true of me too, right? Like how often have you experienced suffering? Not, not suffering that, that happens as a result of a fallen world necessarily. Not, not death of loved ones or things like that. But suffering as a result of something sinful you did. And you promise God, I'll never do it again, Lord. Right? Like, I'll never watch that again, Lord, I promise. Or I'll never text him again, Lord, I promise. Or I'll never drink that much again, Lord, I promise. Don't we fail at these promises we make to to God? I remember in college, um, I got into major trouble with my group of friends. Um, My cousin, who's more like my sister, was a part of the group. And she and I, I'll never forget, we went on a walk together. We put our arms around each other um, as family, and we covenanted with each other. We didn't say, I covenant now. But, but we made promises to each other. We said, we're going to start going to church. We're going to start reading our Bible every day. We're going to be part of a small group. We're going to hold each other accountable to these things. We failed. We failed. We, I mean, I'm not saying we, we totally failed, but we just... We, we, we made a covenant with each other to stop sinning. And we made a covenant with the Lord that, man, I think all of these problems are a result of our sins. So let's just stop sinning. The reality is Israel cannot obey. They cannot stop rebelling from God's word. They cannot stop rebelling from what they know to be good. Does this sound familiar? Like my flesh can't stop hungering. And feasting on the things of the world that are sinful. And yet my spirit inside me is hungry for holiness. Hungry to walk in righteousness. You ask me ten out of ten times, what do I want to do? I want to be righteous. I want to to love the Lord. I want to follow the Lord. I want others to follow me as I follow the Lord. And if you look at my life, you would see someone who constantly goes to the buffet of sin for a little bit of seconds. Remember the pattern that we saw that they sinned, God judged, they pleaded, God forgave. Well, well, this system, this pattern is in place for us too. It's in place today for us too. And we fail all the time, right? Like I sin, I feel bad, I'm convicted of my sin. I plead for forgiveness from God and he forgives. When the Israelites um, here in Nehemiah, when they're pleading for mercy, when they're pleading for forgiveness... We need to think about how God shows them mercy and forgiveness. The way he does it, there's, there's small ways in the Old Testament that he does this, but the main way he does this is the plan of how he was going to answer all of their pleas for mercy from the beginning of time. Right? Nehemiah takes place 450 years before a baby is born in a manger in Bethlehem. God sends himself in the form of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to the world. And Jesus is crucified for the disobedience, for the sins of the people of Israel, and for all the people who would find themselves in Christ. Every sin God's people might do is put on Jesus. 
And as a result, they are saved. So we sin, God judges, we plead, God forgives. We sin, that's true, daily, hourly, we sin. We believe we're born into sin because of the first sin of Adam and Eve, our parents. So we sin, but next God judges. He does judge. But who does he judge? He doesn't judge us who deserve it. He places the righteous judgment that sin deserves, death itself. Sin deserves death. He places that judgment on Christ, the Messiah. And so no longer does judgment take place on bulls or calves. Or no longer does judgment take place on disobedient people being righteously punished to awaken them from their sin and bring them back to God. No longer do those things take place. Instead, judgment for us is placed on Christ. And so third, we plead, those who plead, when we plead, when we confess that we are sinful and we need to have another stand in our place for judgment, when we plead that we believe in Jesus, who he says he is and what he has done, God's response is forgiveness, mercy. The Father's response is, you you are forgiven fully, eternally, through a judgment placed on the Son. So we sin, God judges Christ, we plead for forgiveness, and God has already forgiven us in him. There's a grand narrative to this being true, but but we, like the Israelites, um, even though we've been freed from slavery to sin, there's still a part of us that, that yearns to go back to Egypt, that runs back to sin in slavery. And in all those little instances, every time we stumble in these small failing, small sin, big sin, all those instances, we can look to the cross of Christ and remember he has taken judgment on our behalf. He has paid the price that sin demands. We can confess and plead for mercy with earth on our forehead, with hungry stomachs that are indicating our hunger for righteousness in a spiritual sense. We can plead and confess in those ways, and the Lord in mercy responds, you are forgiven. You're forgiven in Christ. He says, come, this is what we do at the table, come eat and drink at my table once again. Come to me, Christ says, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give them rest. Come to me and grasp your forgiveness. It's the spiritual sense of the table is that we are, we are feeding and fighting our flesh because we feed our spirit who wants righteousness. We're yearning for righteousness. So we come to the table. We do so in acknowledgement of our sin, but knowing that every time we do, we're feasting on the one who has judged our behalf, and we are forgiven. We are forgiven. Let's pray. I think of, uh, Lord, I think of you now and me, um, you on a cross, arms spread, blood trickling, me at your feet, earth on my forehead, pleading for forgiveness. The sins that I have gone back to over and over and over again, the covenants I've made and broken with you and my brothers and sisters over and over and over again, desperate for forgiveness and 
And Lord, as, as we kind of look up from this mental picture, you're no longer on a cross, but on a throne. You on the throne say, it is finished. You are my son, you are my daughter, you are a co-heir, you are forgiven. The judgment I have paid on your behalf, you are seen as nothing less than an adopted son and an adopted daughter of the living God. You are seen as nothing less than righteous and worthy of all dignity and honor bestowed to one of my children. That is true for those who plead your name in this room this morning. Hallelujah, hallelujah, you have done it. There is nothing better, nothing more worthy of our time, our devotion, our praise, nothing more appropriate for us to do with our time other than to worship you for eternity. And yet we keep being tantalized by the things of the earth. One day the cycle will be broken fully, but now... Like many Sundays before, we come to your table in need of refreshment, hungry for righteousness, and being fed by your body and blood. Sustained for the work ahead of walking in holiness and inviting others to taste and see that the Lord is good. They can be forgiven too. If only they would say, I need it. Lord, the world might call us hypocrites. Um, We know that's true. We agree fully because we do the things that we don't want to do. But the reality is for every brother and sister hypocrite among us, which is all of us, we are those who have confessed your name. We are raised in honor, seated with you at the table of grace and goodness, found righteous and holy by your work. Lord, we worship you because of this. Would it be true, if nothing else, would we remember that this morning as we leave and come to your table? Lord, we love you. We worship you. And we pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.